Father, we give you thanks and praise for this day. We thank you especially for your word that you have spoken to us. Lord, we thank you for its power and its grace and your mercy. We ask, Lord, that you would use your word to reach into our hearts today. We ask, Father, in the name of Jesus, that you pour out your Holy Spirit on us and on this place. And I ask you, Lord, to give me words to speak that my own words and thoughts might be forgotten. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the things that I face uh, to deal with in, in the coming months is what to do with the car. We have, I left at home a, a little red um, Pontiac car that I drive around, and I noticed just before we left that now it's starting to rot out in the uh, rocker panel, so the, you know, the, the bit of metal under the door, I noticed it's got a little bumpy, which means it's, it's um, rusting from the inside out. Where we live, there's an awful lot of salt that goes on the roads, and I've had that car for uh, more than nine years now. And so, you know, probably doesn't owe me anything. It's been a good little car, so we have to decide what to do. Keep the car or, or replace it somehow. And if I'm going to replace it, what do I replace it with? Now, if I could pick anything, it would probably be a Porsche 911. <laughs> now, there's, there's a reason for it, not just because it looks cool. But I can tell you, I, I have had the privilege, the joy, the honor... Uh, four times in my life having driven a 911. And I can tell you, I can justify it because of the way the car handles. I spent a lot of time driving, and they do stick to the road. Now, mind you, they're rear-end car, and if you get the back end out, they, they, can, they can be trouble. But there are other cars that, you know, I just, it would be lovely to have. And I don't know if you've ever heard of a television show called Top Gear. Uh, used to be on as a car show with these three British guys, they review cars and, and so on. And having watched them and read the magazine and different things, it, you know, it, it opens your eyes to what's possible. And there's a car that, for a while, was the fastest production car you could buy. A Bugatti Veyron. I don't know if you've heard of these cars. Every once in a while you see one around. They're amazing vehicles. And part of what makes them so amazing is all the little electronics and things on them. So, as you drive the car, you know, a flap will come up here or go down there just to um, give you the extra aerodynamics to make that car stick on the road. Very safe. That and you can get to Dallas in like half an hour. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, because of traffic and you could probably outrun the highway patrol briefly. <laughs> Amazing car. However, when you get a car like that, you have to take into account not just what it costs to buy it, but things like insurance and maintenance and repairs and so on. The Bugatti Veyron, an oil change, costs $21,000. So it's not high on my list. <laughs> Never mind the fact I probably couldn't afford one tire for it. Never mind a set of tires or a set of brakes or anything else for it. It's just beyond me. But they're, they're, they're ridiculously expensive cars. But, you know, there's a whole pile of things that are, that are just not in, in my world in, in so many ways. And, you know, I thought about it. You could buy a whole car for the price of an oil change for that car. 
and it reminded me the other day I was listening, sometimes I listen to the radio and there's, you know, there's some talk shows that I listen to on occasion and I happen to have it on and I missed the beginning of it, but this fellow was having a conversation with the host and he was some kind of journalist and I, I wish I'd heard the beginning because I thought somehow I need to find this game. He'd spent time with the, shall we say, um, less than impoverished and experienced their lifestyle. So he was talking about sitting with this fellow and they drank this bottle of scotch and the bottle of scotch was $37,000 and at some point he realized the two of them in an evening had drunk the equivalent of two Kias or something. <laughs> and you know, it's amazing what you can do if you have the ability and the means to do it. There's a, there's a shop in New York City where you can buy a hamburger that costs $666. I don't know what kind of beef is on there, but I think I could do other things with the $665 that you could get by going to McDonald's and having a change. You know, and and the six, $700 on a burger seems a bit extravagant to me. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't, I don't know. One time we were with some friends, we happened to go on a, on a trip and uh, walked by this, this restaurant. And it, it's um, owned by a TV personality. And there's a, you know, he has this regular contest to see who's going to operate his, his next restaurant. So this woman had won the contest to run this restaurant. And her cardboard cutout is outside. I thought, we, you know, his food is amazing on TV, all kinds of things. We should, maybe we should try this. So we walked up. And they had the menu posted. And I read down the menu. And the cheapest main course on the menu was $60 for this, this little steak. But it didn't come with anything. If you want potatoes, that's like $15. And you want a bit of veggies beside it, that's another 20 bucks. And if you want something on your potatoes, well, that's another $10. And if you want a glass of wine, that's probably $30 for the glass. You know, it was just crazy. So we went... And got fries. His <laughs> other store. It, you know, it's just amazing. There's the average two-bedroom apartment in Hong Kong costs thirty-seven hundred dollars a month for an apartment, and yet there's a demand for it. People go out, they buy Bugattis, and they go out and they spend seven hundred dollars on a hamburger or more. They go out and they spend thousands of dollars on a bottle of champagne with their supper. They spend $100,000 on a ring or a necklace, and they, they don't think anything about it. And it's a completely different world than what most of us are used to, or could even imagine, or probably would even want. But when you live in that world, it becomes normal. And everything about it is normal, and you lose touch, I think, with the rest of the world. Your understanding of what's normal or what's reasonable gets skewed a little bit. But this is not a new phenomenon. I know that will shock you. In fact, that's been in the heart of people for a long time. And so it was that God sent Amos to Israel. Amos was a prophet. He was uh, obedient. And he went, and part of the message that he had was to call the nation, to challenge them about the injustice that they had. Now, he went to people who were doing quite well for themselves. The message we heard read this morning was to people for whom life was pretty good. If they had a, a, I don't know if you had Bugatti chariots, but if such a thing existed, that's what they would have in their multi-stall garage. 
was said to people who had nice houses, had done well for themselves in so many ways. They had become wealthy. They'd done well in life. And yet Amos didn't come with a message to say, you have done well in life, let's go for dinner, you buy me dinner and we'll talk about what God has for you in the future. It's a message of challenge. He said, disaster is coming. Just if you read just, just a few verses before 6 and 7, Amos chapter 5, if you read a little earlier, he says, don't think that you can run off to Bethel or Beersheba or some other place to escape the wrath of God. A fire is going to break out and not a good fire among this nation. Because what you've done is you've perverted justice. When it talked about the, the um, righteousness at the gate, that's the place where trials happened or cases were heard or someone could come and say, you know, someone has wronged me and the community would sit and listen and hear the sides and come up with a right answer. What had happened was those who had the ability bypassed that, manipulated it, and undermined it, and they weren't interested in the truth. In fact, as long as they could excel, as long as they could do something, they would do something. And they took it that success in itself was justification for whatever they did. Foreign concept I know to us. But that's the situation where Amos was sent. But you see, what made it more difficult is there was this sense that if I am wealthy, if I am doing well, it's because God has blessed me. If everything is going okay in my life, I've got this wealth, I've got this nice house, I have the ability to get what I want, therefore God's hand is on me, and everything is well. And Amos said, no, in fact, you are about to face a disaster that is beyond your imagination. You may build that nice dream house you've been thinking about, but you're not going to live in it. And you may plant your vineyards and have this beautiful garden and all these things, but you're not actually going to drink the wine that that vineyard is going to produce. Because your hearts have gone far away from God. And in order to obtain this wealth, you have been willing to take advantage of people who are helpless. You've been willing to manipulate them. God is not pleased. See, sometimes we think that good, good, in other words, I'm doing okay and I'm happy, that means God is doing what God's supposed to do. But if things are going bad or I'm being challenged or things go wrong, then God is not doing what He's supposed to do. But we need to understand sometimes God gets our attention in difficult situations and times. And we can't just assume that if we're wealthy, it means God is happy with us and that everything is good. So it was that this rich man comes up to Jesus one day. I just find it fascinating that Mark tells us that um, Jesus was about to set out on a journey, and that's when this, this person comes up to him. says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He'd reached that point in his life where he's thinking of his eternity, he says, I want, I want this. I want to be right with God. So what is it that I have to do? And so Jesus reads him kind of the second half of the commandments. Well, don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Honor your parents. Don't commit fraud. And this man could say 
Oh, good. I've done it. I've done all those things. The thing that makes this interesting is, is tone is everything. I'm not sure at that point if this man was hoping Jesus would say, Okay, good. You're golden. Off you go. Or if he was waiting because he just knew somehow he knew he'd done those things, and yet somehow he knew he wasn't sure. Whatever it was, there's something stirring inside him that said, I need to talk to this Jesus. I need to ask him. There was something unsettled, a lack of security, something. And so he came and he kneels at Jesus' feet and says, okay, tell me. He says, I, I, I've kept all these since I was young. And then comes this fantastic phrase. Jesus looked at him and loved him. And out of his love said to this, this man, I keep wanting to say young man here. You lack one thing. Go sell what you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow. This was a man who had lots of stuff. He was successful in life. Things went his way. He was probably good looking. You know, just everything was, was just going his way. And yet somehow there was a stirring inside him that said, I'm hungry. I need to know. And so Jesus said to him, you want the answer? I'll tell you the answer. You need to sell your stuff. Because, young man, your stuff owns you. They're not your possessions. You are the possession. Because what controls your life is your stuff. Your business, your home, your, your wealth, your whatever that was. And we can see it because the young man gets up in sorrow and leaves in sadness. We don't actually know the end of the story. We don't know what, what this young man did. Maybe he did go and sell his stuff. Maybe he just lived in sadness. Maybe he justified something in some other way. Maybe he went and asked answers from somebody else until he got the answer he wanted. But what we do know is Jesus said to him, if you truly want to be free, if you truly want God's smile in your life, you need to, you need to cut the ties. So sell your things and give them away. And then comes the keywords. <clears throat> Come, follow me. You've been following your own way, you've been following the ways of the world, and it's got you in the place where you are apart from God. But here's a way that you can come back to Him. The song that we read together this morning says, Satisfy us by your loving kindness in the morning. So we will be rejoiced. So we will rejoice and be glad all the days of our life. A little early we said, so teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts to wisdom. This is a, a song coming out of people who've been through really hard and difficult times. They've been punished for parting ways with God. And now they said, now, God, we, we'll come back to you. Can you please give us your grace, but it begins with this, the part we read begins with the statement, teach us to number our days. That means, give us an awareness of how long we're going to live and what really matters. Help us to see the truth of what is lasting. Help us to understand 
the significance of the time that we have available, the resources that we have, so that we would be wise with what you've given to us. What you've given to us in terms of our, our wealth, our time, our energy, our days. And then satisfy us with you. Now there is a wise prayer. That young man who came and knelt at Jesus' feet, that's the prayer he needed to have in his heart. But Lord, satisfy me with your presence that I can let go of this stuff. You see, the people, I believe the people that Amos went to speak to weren't particularly evil in their intents. I, I think they just didn't see differently. They had a sense that my goal in life is to do well, therefore I will do what it takes to do well. In a sense that this is the way the law works, therefore I will play along with the way the law works. It's like companies. We, we have a company in, in Canada that got itself into a bit of trouble um, because it got charged with giving bribes to um, people in, in, in a foreign country. I think it was somewhere in Africa, but I'm not sure. And so they got in trouble with our government and the income tax and law and all kinds of stuff. But I can see how you can slip into that place because there are parts of the world where nothing happens if you don't slide a few bucks into the right place. And so I'm sure that that's what happened. That the people who were overseas and doing the negotiations probably didn't even get to see the person you have to negotiate with until they gave the right kind of gift or slid the right kind of envelope in with the papers. And that opened the door so you could talk to the right person. When you talk to that right person, and it ends right there unless... Right? You see how this goes. You just get sucked in step by step by step. And I think that's probably what happened to a lot of those people that Amos was sent to. I remember it was the summer um, that Veronica and I got married. I've been away at university. I came home. I had a job all lined up. And the job fell through. So then I, I'm kind of scrambling. I end up working at this company. And um, as it happened, friends, dear friends of, of ours at the time, her family knew the family that owned this business, and she made an interesting comment. You know, we said, oh yeah, I found a job, I'm working at this place. And she said, oh yeah, my parents know them really well. They're great people, they, you know, they go to church together, they're great friends, but they would never do business with them. Because they knew them as people, if you're going to sit and, you know, play cards or whatever, they're wonderful. But if you're going to get into business, you're in trouble. Reminded me of, uh, have you seen, there's a movie called You've Got Mail. I think there's, there's a couple different ones. The one I, I've watched is the one with Tom Hanks and Mae Ryan. And there's this exchange that they have, and, and Tom Hanks' character, Joe Fox, says, it's not personal, it's business. Because his character had put her character, her store, out of business. So it's not personal. I have nothing against you. It's just business. And her line was, well, for me, it's personal. And it's that sense that we can slip into where we can justify our own hearts and our own actions because it's right. It's right for us. It takes us the next step. It's just business. It's the way the world works. And so it's okay. And then sometimes God says, oh, actually, no, it's not okay. Because we're not called to act like the world acts. We're called to live according to God's way. 
And sometimes we need that message to come to us and get our, our attention. I was thinking that as this young man came and, and knelt before Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and loved him, and then the word spoke. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And before him no creature is hidden, but all are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we have not a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sinning. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. We tend to hear that line, grace in the time of need, as to be that moment when I'm sick, or in trial, or in trouble, or my heart is heavy, or, or something like that. But the reality is sometimes we don't know when we're in need. Like that man who came to Jesus. Or like the rich people that Amos went to. They didn't realize how desperate their situation was. And so Jesus spoke the word, the word that pierced right into his heart. And he understood in that moment, the door was open to say to him, look, you have to make a choice here. You can give your life to this stuff. You can be a success in the eyes of the world. Or you can be free and have treasures in heaven and have life with and come follow me. But you have to choose which, which you're going to do. The picture that came to mind with this is, uh, I think for us as Christians, it's preventive maintenance. I don't know if you do preventive maintenance at your house or on your vehicle, but that's where you don't wait for something to break down or go wrong. But you, you, know, you change your oil at regular intervals, you, you rotate your tires, you make sure the belts are in good shape, or you're going to buy a house, you have someone come in and inspect it and make sure that things are not rotten and that you know, things are in good order, that there aren't creatures living up there, all those kinds of things. You do that as wisdom, planning ahead. And there's a sense where we need to do that as Christian people and say, God, let your word pierce into my heart. Because in all honesty, I don't always know if my attitude has gone off a little bit. It's easy for me to justify to myself what I'm doing or thinking or what I want. And that's what can be so difficult in trying to discern what God is asking of us. And so it is we need that word that pierces the heart and the soul and sees our motives. I don't always see my motive, but God sees my motive. And it's by being close to Him, by being in His presence, by having my one desire to say, Satisfy me, God, with Your presence. Search me. Try me. Show me where I need to change. And God does not come in with a sharp two-edged sword and say, I was waiting for you to say that. Did you ever blow it? Whoop! Whack your head off. He says, I've got this sharp two-edged sword, and I'm going to do careful surgery. Because I love you. Hebrew says, we can go with confidence 
before the God who has this sharp two-edged sword because Jesus has been tempted with everything you've ever been tempted with. He knows what it is to live this life. And so we can go with confidence that He will give us His grace. But we have to go into His presence. We have to be willing to let go of ourselves, our own motives, our own goals, our own riches, our own whatever it is. I've discovered the truth of what Jesus said to Peter. Jesus said, you know what? It's almost impossible for someone who's wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For me, that's always been somebody who has a lot more than me. Until I went to Africa. Until Africans came and visited me. That, that shifted the world a little bit to understand what possessions are and what it is to have things. Still, once in a while, I walk in the bathroom and, you know, just turn the, the tap on and wash my hands or turn on the shower or go to the sink and just get a glass of water and I'll suddenly stop and remember not everybody in the world can do that. I have to remember how wealthy I am. And with that comes awareness that that means I need to be careful. Because when things are going well and going easy, it's too easy to get my eyes off of God and onto myself or my own ease or my own entertainment or a Porsche 911 to replace my Pontiac. And yet what did Jesus say? You know what? If you come and follow me, if you give up your, you know, if you give up your father, your mother, your lands, your children, your whatever, if you let everything go, and follow me, you'll discover a hundred times as much coming back to you. Even in this very life, with persecution, but eternity and joy in my presence. We have found that to be so true. Wherever we have gone in our lives, the towns we've lived in, the church has always been our family. We have had mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters. We may not have always had the money in our bank account to go out and do stuff, but it's amazing what God has provided in other ways. We've got to experience things we never would have imagined. Not because we had the capacity, but because God put the pieces together in His own way, in His own time. When we are willing to just let go of everything for His sake, He pours back into our lives more than we could ever imagine. But it comes down to that choice. What is it and who is it that I serve? So we have a warning I think we need to hear. Most of us in this room, by most standards in the world, are pretty wealthy. And so it's worth it for us to stop and ask God, not ourselves, ask God, is there some way in which my stuff owns me? Or the way I live? If so, God, what do I need to do about it? You know, there, there's a reason why we emphasize, well, sometimes emphasize giving in the church. We don't give because the church has a program it needs to run or because the interim rector really needs a Porsche. <laughs> we give because we need it. It's good for us. Because it honors God and recognizes I only have this because of His grace. And I will not be owned by this. And so I lay it on the altar for you, God. That's, that's really what the offering is about and our giving. So sometimes we need to do that. 
But it's not just wealth or stuff. It's what are the motives in our life? What controls us? What has first place? And so let us together ask God to search our hearts. And if there's anything that, that has risen above Him, we may not know it. But trusting in His mercy and grace to help, to give us the grace to make the change and to listen and to respond to what He tells us to do. Because God loves you more than you could ever imagine. And He wants you to have His blessings, not the ones that are temporary, not the ones that pass away, not the ones that can turn on you, not the ones that will try and own you, but the ones that last forever, the ones that give you freedom, the ones that draw you into His presence. So it's not so much about money as your whole life. Will you? Give it into his hands and just let go. He'll pour back more than you can imagine. Probably not the way you imagine. But it's worth it. Let us pray. Lord God, we so often can't see our own motives. So we ask you to come and, and search our hearts. Lord, give us the grace to be able to ask you and to be able to listen to you. Lord, we want to do that preventive maintenance in our lives so that we aren't possessed by anything except you. Lord, it is our cry of our heart that you satisfy us with your presence. Lord, give us a godly perspective on our lives, on our priorities, on our things, on our time, that we would have the joy of what you give. So Lord, give us hearts that are soft and open and generous, that we may walk with you and know you. Jesus' name.